Sony. Hello, Canada. Today's date is June 5th, 2022. It is Canadian Armed Forces Day, so we today want to honor those men and women who have put on the uniform for, for Canada, both past and present, to all of our veterans and current serving service members. Thank you very much for your service. Thank you. And welcome to a full edition of Canadian Common Sense, Canada's Issues in Under an Hour. It is Tony in Saskatchewan. And Lewis out here in BC. How are you, my man? Well, I've had a pretty terrible week. Um, we, we've talked about in the past on the show about the, about the worker shortage in Canada. And um, that has affected me uh, just as much as it's affected other small businesses. I've ended up having to close part of my business because I can't find employees. Um, and and uh, I now have to sell uh, a substantial amount of equipment and of and, and stuff like that uh, to be able to recoup um, the uh, the investment I made in that in that part of the business over the winter, and uh, because I, I yeah I just can't find people. It's like there's nobody out there that wants to work. I was offering you know thirty dollars an hour in benefits, and I didn't get a single application. Unreal! Wow. Yeah, it's so it's been a rough week for me. Um, been a little demoralizing, um, but uh, it's uh, it's it's the, I, I've got Justin Trudeau to thank for it. I mean, he's he's helped train Canadians to uh, not work the past two years, and uh, a lot of people that still don't want to work. Yeah, and as we've uh, referred to in past shows, uh, C223, which is the framework for a guaranteed basic income, is just going to exacerbate that problem. Yeah, it is. And, uh, and I mean, I, I, we've talked about that on the show, too. Um, I mean, if there was any proof that a universal basic income is going to fail, uh, it was CERB that proved it. And... Uh, but that isn't stopping them. They're pushing ahead with Bill C-223. Um, and, and this is something I think all our listeners need to uh, contact their, their MPs about and say, hey, how has this passed reading and we have never heard of it? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And I actually did contact my MP uh, right about the time we did our, our show uh, discussing that and got no replies. So, uh Keep trying, though. Keep after them, because this has got to stop. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And that's a, an NDP-sponsored bill that's being backed by the Liberals. So, um, and and there's a, a second bill, and it's in the Senate. S, uh, it's Senate Bill S-233. Um, and that is calling for the exact same thing. It's almost exactly word for word. And that one was sponsored by a 
appointed senator. Um, it's also passed first reading in the Senate. So um, we're just getting hit in both houses. Yeah, that's right. So, uh, yep. So, buckle up, Canada. All right. So, on the show today, did we say landslide? Did we talk about legalizing drugs? And why does the left keep hijacking innocent, legitimate causes? And more. Well, let's talk about the big story of the day, and that is uh, Doug Ford winning a second majority government. He did, and in good fashion, he uh, increased the seat count. Now, I believe this, his seat count was 73 in 2018, or low 70s at any rate. And, well, on June 2nd, this past Thursday, 83 seats went PC, Um the NDP, 31, so they dropped slightly. The Liberals, well, they only gained one seat, a total of eight seats, so they are not have official party status. One Green MP, that was Mike Schreiner, winning his seat again in Guelph. And one Independent, and I definitely want to talk about her, but we'll uh, we'll talk about the big stories first, and that's uh, for Ford. Uh, less than 50% of the electorate got out and voted which isn't really a surprise for me because it wasn't really uh there was no big gripping issue in this campaign. So uh, Doug Ford played it well by keeping a relatively low profile and uh, holy crap, that's a big victory. 83 out of 124 seats. Yeah. And the, uh, the thing that um, kind of surprised, I mean, I, I am surprised by the less than 50% voter turnout. I mean, that's really low turnout. I mean, that is if if we're living in a time where democracy is being threatened, and I put that in quotation marks, um, it it appears that not very many people care. <laughs> um, that that is such a low turnout, um, and it's. Uh, I mean, I I read. I read a uh, article about election by one of our liberal friendly newspapers in this country. I think it uh, uh, was the Globe and Mail. And um, boy, did they ever try to spin this election results? They actually said in the article that Ontario voters are beginning to put their trust back in the Liberal Party. <laughs> Evidenced by the increase in their vote share. Um, they only got one additional seat, and they don't even have official party staff. <laughs> but yet, Ontario is showing more confidence in that party. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome i i love that we got i'll have to try and find that article we can share it on our facebook page that's great that that's <laughs> that is a reach i mean that is a giant reach that was the gist of the article it wasn't about how doug Ford, you know pulled off a second majority government despite you know ontarians being fairly upset with him over his handling of covid uh, 
it was, oh yeah, yeah, the liberals—they're regaining your trust. <laughs> That's awesome. Now, um, if they trusted the liberals that much, um, maybe Stephen Del Duca would have won his seat, but he did yeah, not. Exactly. <laughs> oh, my God. So um, one result of the election that I think has Doug Ford smiling is that both Stephen Del Duca and Andrea Horvath, who's the NDP leader, for those who don't know, both uh, resigned as leaders of their respective parties. So uh, Doug Ford has got a very, very wide open swath ahead of him with uh, no opposition. Yeah, I mean, let's be real. All Andrea Horvath had to do was not be crazy and she probably would have made this a much closer race good point but but nope in true NDP fashion she had to be crazy yeah yeah that's right yeah and uh now she'd been leader of the NDP since 2008 or 2009 so this was her fourth campaign as NDP leader and I guess her time to shine was the last election that's when she made the biggest surge, becoming official opposition, but yeah, she couldn't get it done, so I understand why she resigned. And uh, I mean, from what I'd heard from people in Ontario, even before this, this this election, was that she was already past her best before date, as it were, so no surprises there. I mean, uh, all the best to her. She, uh, she, she didn't, didn't get it done, so maybe the next leader will uh, have more success. Well, I mean, it's the thing is, is that Ontario has had some pretty horrendous experiences with liberal and um, and they like Kathleen Wynne and uh, uh, Bob Ray, right? I mean, they were awful, awful governments in that in that province. So, I mean, I can understand, you know, a party or the people not really wanting to vote for them because their last experiences were terrible. But I mean, Doug Ford, uh, I mean, I, all someone had to do was not be nuts and, and have some, you know, common sense policies, but, but no, it was just how much free stuff can we throw at people? And, most of that free stuff that they were planning on throwing at people was stuff that most people didn't even care about. That's a good point. Yeah. I mean, Doug Ford, uh, very smartly, he appealed to commuters, which the 905 is full of. And, you know, he talked about highways. He talked about I mean, that budget of theirs was absolutely loony. I will admit that. But I mean, yeah. at least in the campaign, he did talk about, like you say, sensible stuff that actually appealed to the, the people that mattered, which was, Unfortunately, more of this in southern Ontario. And when you look at that map, I mean, you, re- you referenced that when we were talking before the show. Um, look at the map of where all the support was, and uh, Doug Ford hit all the right, right targets as far as that's concerned. Yeah, I was, I was actually kind of surprised by that. I mean, we we spoke about uh, when we were talking about the gun issue last uh, episode. We were talking about how there's a lot of NDP rural seats in the country, and uh, and which which is why it surprises me that the NDP is fully on board with these uh, gun bans and additional gun control, when many 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 of their members are, are rural. Um, I mean, they got 
you remember during uh, Kirchner's uh, long gun registry back in the 90s, 95, um, they got a lot of pushback. The NDP got a lot of pushback from their rural uh, supporters. And, uh, and in fact, there were, I believe, it was single digits, but I believe there were some uh, NDP MPs that actually voted against the gun registry in the House of Commons. Um, and uh, and this, this time, um, boy, that Ontario election, there is a lot of orange in the northern half of that province. And it, and it kind of surprised me because there's um, there's a lot of gun owners in that part of the world. Exactly, yeah. And uh, for listeners who don't know, the electoral seats in Ontario provincially match up with their federal seats. So the voting patterns are likely somewhat similar. Um, we all know that the Timmins, James Bay riding, for example, Charlie Angus, federally, who's a excellent NDP MP and the the only two seats I saw on that map that were like in northern northwestern Ontario that were PP were uh, Kenora Rainy River and then Thunder Bay Atacokan which is you know very northwest Ontario pushing toward Manitoba and then one in the uh, which is North Bay area and otherwise it looked like it was completely orange out there yeah yeah but it but I mean it like you say that the ridings they match up federally and provincially yet boy that dispersion is completely different yeah that's that's funny traditionally i think you've pointed this out on past shows that when there's a liberal government in ottawa ontario tends to put a conservative government into queen's park so perhaps there's some of that but yeah i was really surprised that uh, you know the bottom half of Ontario was mostly blue, and then look at all that orange across the north. Yeah, there. I mean, those ridings are enormous, so it does make it look uh, a lot more impressive for the NDP than it probably really is. Well, that's a good point. Yeah, I mean, and they certainly had some support in the Hamilton area, which is where Andrew Horvath is from, and so, so it, yeah, it, yeah, it's kind of like in BC here. I mean, like. BC, the, set, the the top half of the province only has two seats federally, right? Like, it, and it's a big province, and and in the top half of the province, there's only two seats in the federal uh, House of Commons, and so when someone wins, there's this gigantic, like in the northwest, there's a gigantic swath of orange, but it's only one seat, right? Yeah. Well, federally, here in Saskatchewan, to the entire northern half of Saskatchewan is one riding. So, yeah. no matter who wins, it looks pretty impressive. Yeah. Okay, so what I want to touch on here is that there was an independent elected in Ontario. And I love to see people who are independents running for office, period, because typically they have no chance whatsoever. I do think back to the 90s when John Nunziata, who was a Liberal MP, Voted against the uh, GST, or yeah, voted against. No, it was Kretchen promised to repeal the GST and didn't. And John Nunziata voted against him. That's what it was. And he got kicked out of the party and then won again as an independent. And I thought that guy's really got some cojones. And 
who also has some cojones. And congratulations to her, Bobby Ann Brady, who won in the Haldeman Norfolk riding, which is southwestern Ontario. She actually was a, a member of the, the PC team for the past NPP. And party decided to choose a candidate of their own when she was seeking the nomination and the former MPP supported her and was good as an independent because they said that's not really right that you just decided to appoint somebody and she won I think that's fantastic yeah she did and, and it's uh, it's a noteworthy win because like you said independents generally don't win in election campaigns because in the legislature, they are virtually powerless. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, and especially when a situation like this, when it's such a huge majority, they're, uh, yeah, I mean, she may not have much of a voice at all. And independents, of course, don't have money behind them most of the time. So the advertising signage, et cetera, is difficult to come by. Well, but they she generally, generally, yeah. yeah. She won quite convincingly. She was 15,000 plus votes and the PC candidate behind her was 12,000 and some. So she, uh, you know, she actually, she had to have run a really good campaign. Like I, I, I like her. That, yeah, that's, that's quite a margin of victory, especially considering they're both conservatives. Right. Um, so, I mean, that would have been, I, I, I doubt that her vote total would have been 27,000 votes had she been PC candidate, but um, she obviously appealed to other party voters as well. Um, but uh, but yeah, I mean, she's the thing is, is that when you're in the House of Commons and you're an independent, or sorry, the legislature and you're an independent, you don't get like uh, research budgets. You don't get uh, voting or sorry, speaking. Um, You know, privileges in the legislature very often. Like you, you, it, it, it's very seldom that you get to even speak in the legislature. Actually, that's a good point. I remember hearing or watching, I should say, in Canada and in the federal game, but he actually had said that he had to negotiate um, that he would get one question per day and other speaking privileges in order to you know, back the Kretchen government. And he said that he, you know, negotiated that and saying, okay, well, confidence motion, no, but other bills, yes, just so he could get speaking. So you're right, you make a good point. Yeah, and I I mean, I really, I wouldn't be surprised if the PCs actually attempt to recruit her back into the party. But, uh, you know, go groveling to her, apologizing we made a mistake. Um, but um, I don't know. She might be. Uh, she might be smart to reject it. Yeah. No. Good point. Yeah, they might actually uh, do that and maybe try to offer her some kind of a plum, a good office, or junior cabinet post or something. But I agree with you. Yeah, she should just uh, flip in the bird. <laughs> well, I never said that, but. <laughs> but well. Yeah, say no. Let's let's put that. She probably should say no. So um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so now the question I have for you, Lewis, is if you're an Ontario Liberal today and your leader has stepped down, your party does not have official party status yet again. So now your party is going to go. Well, I guess conceivably eight years 
with open official party status, so there's lack of funding going on. How confident are you that your party is going to be viable for the next election? Well, well, honestly, I mean, we like we've talked about this before. You made a, a, a you alluded to it earlier here to, this morning, is that when it, it all depends on what government is in Ottawa. Uh, if if I am a Ontario Liberal and I think that um, you know maybe the Conservatives are going to win the next election in Ottawa that c- come the next uh, election in Ontario, I might we might actually have a shot um, because because Ontario does they they do usually put Conservative provincial government in place when there's a federal Liberal government. When Stephen Harper was in power, they had uh, they had a uh, provincial liberal government, I believe. So, I mean, there's there's uh, there is some reality to that. And if I was an Ontario liberal, I would not be um, ready to throw in the towel yet. Well, that's a good point. Now, uh, to close this out, just for some comic relief, there was a panel on, I believe it was Power and Politics. And yeah, and (laughs) I don't remember the lady who was the panelist right now, but one of her observations was uh, one of the reasons the Ontario Liberals did so poorly is because Stephen Del Duca is bald. Canadians won't vote for a bald man. Really? She actually said that. He is, oh my god! Looks like he came from another planet. <laughs> is that what she said? That's what she said. <laughs> oh my god! These, you know, and and I gotta say, she is most likely a liberal or a lefty, um, because because it's always identity politics with them. It could. It couldn't be that he had terrible policies. It couldn't be that he wasn't likable, um, because he wasn't, and he did have terrible policies. Um, I mean, that's that's. Uh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Canadians are are uh, hair bigots. <laughs> Exactly right. Yeah. <laughs> wow. We're going to coin that term. We're, that that that's our term. Hair bigots. Hair bigots. Yeah. <laughs> there damn, we, damn you, Ontarians, and your bigotry about hair. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. Yeah, that was great. <laughs> All right. Well, hey, why don't we talk about drugs? Okay, let's do. All right. So, the your government uh, provincially in BC appealed to the federal government to decriminalize a small amount of well illicit drugs, and the federal government decided. Well, I think the BC government asked for four point five grams. The federal government came back and said, "We will decriminalize possession of two point five grams." Now it's uh. 
it's causing a bit of stir, but uh, I did look into some numbers here. And I think the federal government is actually, well, I think they're crazy to let it go. <laughs> the uh, law enforcement data suggested that 85% of drug seizures in BC are for quantities less than two grams. Like the average in Vancouver, Abbotsford was 1.9, Victoria 1.6 grams, RCMP North data was 1.3 grams. So as far as the the amount of, of the possession goes, they're probably okay, but I kind of have a problem with them saying that it's okay to carry 2.5 grams. Now this is collectively, if you've got meth or opioids or cocaine, and they said MDMA. I don't even know what that is. You? Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, yeah. I do. Yeah. Okay. Uh, it's a methamphetamine. But oh. So, yeah, you can collectively carry 2.5 grams of any or all of those substances, and it's uh, decriminalized. I don't know if they're helping. Well, well um, uh, my buddy... My- like- my buddy's an RCMP officer, and he said that they already um, treat it as if it's decriminalized because the the paperwork, the paperwork, and the uh, and everything involved in in uh, charging someone with such a small amount of drugs in the first place is um, uh, o- overly burdensome. Considering that the judge is probably just going to give them. Um, a slap on the wrist. Oh, um, so the police just seize drugs and destroy them as it is, um, anyway. And you just alluded to the uh, the numbers that of being the average the average amount of seizure, which is one point nine, one point six, etc. Uh, around the province. So they've that's those those drug seizures is just. The same thing as what happens when you decriminalize it, except now, now that it's decriminalized it, it, or will be decriminalized, it's uh, um, they can actually write you a ticket and issue you a fine. Um, but the thing is, is that it's it's the message. It's the message that. Yeah, you know what? It's okay if you want to uh, have two and a half grams of fentanyl on on your body um do, i mean tony do you do you know what the lethal dose of fentanyl is for a human being isn't it just a couple of grams? it's i believe it's two milligrams yeah ridiculously low yeah so yeah i believe that it's so if you have two and a half grams of fentanyl on you, you can kill 125 people with that. Wow, that puts it in perspective. Yeah. So this is this is not a message that we that that any should be sending. I mean, here, here's the thing. This is this is being. Um, pushed by people who think that Portugal has done the right thing with because Portugal's results from their decriminalizing of hard drugs has been exceptionally successful. But what people forget to mention is that they didn't just decriminalize drugs. They put they put massive investment into uh, rehabilitation programs. They put massive investment into 
uh, housing and into uh, um, into uh, the programs needed by drug addicts to get off of drugs and to get back into a um, uh, a, a you know, a successfully, well, not successfully, but, you know, like a, uh, 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 a productive life. And they also have some pretty harsh penalties for people who don't, who don't do it. It's like in Portugal, you are given a choice. You either go into rehab or you go to jail. And we're not doing that part of it. We're not doing the investments in, um, into uh, uh, rehab and into housing and all of this. It's we're we're like the the Portugal model has a reward system built in, and the, and it's like if you go into rehab, when you get out of rehab, you go into a like a, uh, a like a group home kind. Of where you you sleep in the same room as you know four other people or three other people and then if you want a private room well you have some goals you have to achieve like you have to be clean for six months you have to be and you're drug tested every day you have to you have to hold down a job um you have to do this and you have to do that and then you get rewarded with a private room and if you uh, fail to test clean or you lose your job because you've been, you know, you got fired or something, uh, you lose that privilege again and you, you have to drop back into a dorm with three other people. And then, you know, you have to work your way back up again. And if you, and if you decide you don't want to take part in these programs, then your other option is you go to jail. And so, so the Portugal has isn't didn't just decriminalize drugs. They they have a whole that they built and initiated and implemented before they decriminalized the drugs. You no, know, see, that's the first idea. I mean, that I could actually get behind that. Now, I've got to bring this up because. I never knew such an organization could exist, but the vice president of the Area Network of Drug Users, Vandu, yes. said 4.5 is too low. That's not enough. And people, you know, are now going to have to go out and resupply themselves more frequently. First of all, who, who organizes a network of drug de- drug users? And, um, why complain that it's that it's not enough when hey man this is a at least it's something being handed towards you well see the thing is that in vancouver uh, abusing drugs is deemed a human right oh my god because they have drug dispensing machines on the street in um like down in east hastings uh, like these, like vending machines for drugs. Oh my God! Um, there's safe injection sites where you can go and get a clean needle to shoot up with, and 
they claim that these that these safe injection sites are successful in removing drug users from the street and getting them help and all this kind of stuff because they offer drug rehabilitation programs in the basement. Um, but they, they don't work. And I, and I've talked to people who are in the, uh, uh, social worker, like social work, um, industry here in BC and, they say no. They don't work. Those program the the safe injection site does not work. All it does is it gives people a place to shoot up drugs and not worry about being arrested. That's it. And it doesn't work in getting people off the street. It doesn't work in people getting into rehab. It just doesn't work. And anytime they tell you it works, they're lying. And they, uh, but Vancouver, they like they just have this weird view that it's a human right and you are a bad person for trying to stop these people from using drugs and living on the street because apparently living on the street and doing drugs is a human right and you're not allowed to uh do anything about it and that's why you've got these encampments everywhere down there that's why you've got east hastings that looks like a war zone it's why you've got you know drug dispensing vending machines and all this and they're trying to put a safe injection site in our area of uh the okanagan here and people are really resisting it. And we've, the, it's, I mean, if these, if these programs all worked, we wouldn't have set a new record for overdose deaths last year, but we did. Yeah, exactly. Actually, I wanted to to, to quote that because like BC declared a public health emergency in 2016 over this. And since they've declared that public health emergency, overdose deaths every day. But in 2021, 2,224 overdose deaths from illicit drug use. So how well is that working out for you, BC? Yeah, it's not. And and, uh, if you'll remember, Portland, Oregon, uh, or not Portland, Oregon, Oregon as a whole, um, decriminalized hard drugs last year and this past 12 months since they since they uh, decriminalized all hard drugs oregon has set all-time record for the most overdose deaths they've ever had oh my gosh and bc thinks this is a good way to go Jeez. Yeah. I'm well, telling uh, you, I'm telling you, my province is is turning into a bit of a crap hole and along with our country because of policies like this. Yep. Hard to argue that. And that's actually uh policies like this is a good segue into our last segment. Uh, now we posted up an article on our Facebook page. And I encourage you to read it if you get the chance. It's about George Brown College. And it's just another example of something you and I have railed against for years. And that is the white liberal left taking over what sometimes are very legitimate causes and then being offended on behalf of others. This George Brown case is 
absolutely an example of that. Now, what George Brown College in Toronto has done is for any students who are taking online courses, they first have to click an acknowledgement, declare that they have benefited from, quote, the colonization and genocide of Indigenous people. Quote, before they'll be allowed to take online classes. And if they click no, that they will not acknowledge that, they're immediately kicked out of the out of the site and they're not allowed to enroll. Ridiculous. Wow. Wow. Yeah, no, we had a listener, Drew, who actually had commented on that. Um, you know, I said as an indigenous person, he was absolutely offended by that. Because he said that it's just virtue signaling is all it is. And that's exactly it, Drew. Um they're just virtue signaling. They don't understand the issues. They just think, oh, this is the flavor of the month. We're going to be offended on behalf of Indigenous people. And they've taken over this issue. They've taken over the murdered and missing women and uh, murdered and missing Indigenous women and girls file. It now, what started out as being a Northern BC problem, is suddenly now expanded that it's not just the murdered and missing Indigenous women. It's now a... Uh, US LGBT LMNOP issue. And it's uh they're what they're doing is they're minimizing what are actually legitimate causes. Yeah, absolutely. Like there, there's there's so much of this going on, and it's been going on for years, and we've talked about it many, many times on the show about how and it's always white people. Yeah. Um it's always our stupid race that decides that they're taking offense for another race and if you and you and i'm sorry but you cannot get any more racist than thinking that you know what other people should be offended by yeah well and you pointed out to a previous show look at the uh the, the uh oh my god we spit it out tony the uh, unmarked graves that have been found across the country i mean you were one of the first ones to jump on and say, "Hey, you know what? The, and you know, the Indian bands themselves aren't the ones who are going crazy over this." No, and in fact, the media pretty much ignored the the chiefs and the former chiefs of these Indian bands who said, "Oh, hold on, hold on, hold on. We know about these these uh, grave sites." You know, the, we've we've known about them forever because we use these cemeteries to bury our dead, and 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 the media all but ignored them. And I'm sorry, but the media is primarily made up of white people, and they think they know what's best for them. They know what they think they know what what uh what the natives should be offended by or upset by or that you know and, and it's funny because it's usually straight people who get upset about lgbtq issues too and it's like i don't understand what's going on with people it is not your place to be offended for someone else yeah, and, in, right. and in fact, you shouldn't be offended by it if the, the person you think should be offended by it isn't offended by it. And you don't call them, you know, derogatory 
because they're not offended by it because that is what happens these days if if you if someone you think should be offended by it isn't offended by it you call, start calling them names and yeah, that's a good point. Like, uh, people call it, oh if you're not offended by this cause you're a self-hating whatever exactly yeah <laughs> yeah no it's really dramatic uh and you're right it seems to be that the uh we probably use the term guilty white liberal a lot, and that's not capital L liberals, it's people who are of that, that vein. It's just it's guilty white liberals thinking, yeah, you're right, it's condescending. I need to be offended on your behalf. And the media are complicit. I mean, church burning in Canada were considered understandable but regrettable, I think was how it was phrased. It's like, it's never understandable to commit arson. Sorry, guys. Yeah, and in fact... Those, those those churches that were being burnt down were on Indian reserves and were used by First Nations people to go to church on Sundays. Yeah, that's right. Well, remember, I think it was the Kawasis Reserve where the chief had said, like, you know, there's people say, hey, no, that, that we got married in that church or, you know, I, my grandparents yeah. married in that church and well, and the thing is, is like, and I said it at the time, and I still say it today, if they ever catch who did it, I think you're going to find out that they were white. Oh, I guarantee it, yeah. Yeah. And, when, and then the coastal gas line, can you remember how uh, they would choose your cause carefully? Oh, well, I think just now they finally are laying some charges from the coastal gas line, domestic terrorist attack, and yeah. well, they still haven't found who burned any churches. Yeah, well, that coastal gas link one is interesting because the uh, the protesters were all waving um, indigenous flags and stuff, I believe, and uh, and they uh, for the most part are white. Well, that part doesn't surprise me, not one bit. No. So, and I, and I mean, we've said this before. I mean, the reason you didn't see any protesting over the last two years against pipelines in bc is because the border was closed and the americans the the paid american protesters couldn't get here yeah oh you're absolutely right i i couldn't uh agree with you more on that one yeah that's pathetic so okay. i think canada that uh we're going to leave you on that sour note for the, the this this week. It's not as sour as most weeks, but we're going to cut it off there for you. Unless you've got any more rain, you can fill that on Canada. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah. yeah. So, thanks for joining us, Canada. We're going to leave it there, and you know, I'm sure you can look forward to another rant or two this week because, well, there's still firearms issues going on, and you know, Lutz does care a little bit about firearms. Yes, I do. <laughs> so, uh, until next week, it is Tony in Saskatchewan. And Lewis out here in BC. Good night. Good night, Canada. <laughs>